Father in heaven, we thank you so much that we can come together to study a very important subject. We're living in a time where there's much that is happening, not just simply in the world, but in the church. And Lord, we need balance. We need understanding. And I already know there's no way we can cover everything that would need to be covered in such a short time. But please give us enough gems that will produce a foundation that we can know how to build upon it, ultimately finding ourselves in the arms of Jesus. Please abide with us now, we pray, and grant us your wisdom. And Lord, I commit myself into your hands afresh. Please take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Put your words in my mouth, I pray. And I thank you that you've heard this prayer, for we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like to invite you to turn your Bibles with me to the book of Isaiah, the 58th chapter. Isaiah, the 58th chapter. And I want you to see what the Bible says here as we consider the Word of God. In Isaiah 58, the Bible says, starting at verse 1, if you're there, say amen. amen. Cry aloud, spare not. Lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression, and the house of Jacob their sin. There is a time when it is appropriate to cry aloud, to hold back nothing, and to point out the sins that are taking place not just in the world, but even right in the midst of God's people. This rebuke that is to be given is not something that is only designated uh, for leaders to do to laity, but sometimes laity to leaders. And the reason we know this to be so is go to the book of Jeremiah 23. In Jeremiah, the 23rd chapter, I want you to see what the Bible says here. Jeremiah, we're going to chapter 23. And when you look at Jeremiah, the 23rd chapter, we'll start at verse 1. And I want you to see what the Bible says as we start at verse 1. And if you're there, please say amen. amen. The Bible says, Woe be unto who? The pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. Ye have scattered my flock and have driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doing, saith the Lord. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries whither I have driven them and will bring them again to their folds and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed. Neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. A time came where God saw that it was appropriate that a rebuke had to be given even to the pastors. A rebuke had to be given to leaders. And we see this even demonstrated in the life of John the Baptist. Because when you look at John the Baptist, you remember what the Bible says in Matthew 3 as we turn there. It was in Matthew, the third chapter, when John was making a call to repentance, that that call to repentance was not limited to laity, but it was also to leaders. And we see this in the example of John the Baptist as we look at Matthew, the third chapter. And the Bible says in the book of Matthew, chapter 3, and when you get there, please say, Amen. Starting at verse 1, it says, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, 
and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of who? The Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism. He said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meat for repentance. There were times that even John the Baptist saw that it was necessary to rebuke leaders even within the church. It was Jesus himself that as he was progressing in his ministerial work, reaching out consistently, he finally got to a place where he saw it necessary to do a very important work. And I want you to see how the Bible unfolds this as we look at Matthew 23. In Matthew, the 23rd chapter, Jesus begins his dialogue, and I want you to catch this because we're going to look at a lot, and we're going to see how much the Lord can help us cover. My prayer is that somehow we can complete it. The Bible says in the book of Matthew, the 23rd chapter, and when you're there, please say amen. amen. It says in Matthew 23, Then spake Jesus to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not, for they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with the one of their fingers. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi, but be not ye called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Straight language, real straight. This was not done privately, it was done publicly. There comes a time in ministry, there comes a time in the phase of the church, there comes a time in the phase of the progression of gospel work that it is appropriate to give rebukes. And the rebukes may very well fall even on leaders. And what has happened is that today in Adventism, we see a lot of I guess you would call it fanaticism. You see a lot of anger. You see a lot of bitterness. You see a lot of resentment. You see a lot of cowardice. You see things on both sides of the spectrum that causes great perplexity and sometimes even confusion. When we see that we're living in a time where literally people are performing and doing things, I can't begin to tell you the amount of things that I have faced. Sometimes people wonder, Brother Lemon, why is it that you don't do any sermons or anything you know, on the networks where you really get into some of the evils that's taking place, even from leadership in the church. But there's a reason for that. And I want to talk to you about that reason today, because we're going to talk about the ministry of rebukes. 
It is not an issue that the Bible shows very clearly that there is a time and place for rebukes. There is a time and place where God will raise up men and will raise up women that will even look individuals in the eyes and let them know of their hypocrisies. And what we cannot do is we cannot consult our fears and our ministry's success. There are some that see a lot of evil taking place in the church right now. A lot of that evil is being pushed by men who hold responsible positions but are not doing the work of God. And what they're doing is they're undoing the very things that God's ministers come in to set up that the people may know how to walk in the freedom and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The problem is, is that there's a certain class of ministers that what they will do is they will consult the success of their ministry and their ability to have large influence and continued sustenance. And what they will do is they will see things that are clearly error and wrong from leadership, but they will hold it back in the name of being wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. So are we saying then that Jesus was unwise? Are we saying John the Baptist was unwise? Are we saying that Jeremiah was unwise? Are we saying that Isaiah was unwise? God forbid. Why is it that these men knew how to call sin by its right name, no matter where it landed, even if it landed at leadership? There are many ministers and ministries today that are possessed with the spirit of cowardice. And they are afraid and they don't want to get in trouble. So what they will do is they will draw a line, spiritually speaking, and they will give the people just enough truth to keep them lost. They will not cross that line because they know once I cross this line, it could mean my ministry. Brothers and sisters, if that's how you think, you cannot finish the work. God has just disqualified you. Because if Jesus would have thought like that, there'd never be a story of the cross. If John the Baptist thought like that, he would have died with his head still on his shoulders. You understand? We have to understand that sometimes there comes a time and place that standing for truth will result in penalties. It will result in punishment. And it can result even in some of the worst things our minds can imagine. But we have to have enough of the love of Christ within our hearts that we will not fear what will happen to us and we will not consult consequences. But there's another extreme. While there's certain ministers and ministries that are on one side of the extreme that are possessed with the spirit of cowardice and self-sustenance, there's another type of minister and ministries that exist that in their minds to basically say anything and say everything that comes to their mind and begin to attack and begin to attack and strive against their brethren, they think it's virtuous. So when they see individuals in the church doing wrong, when they see certain leaders in the church that do wrong, what they do is they are quick to put a post up on the internet. Call them by their names. Tell everybody, look at these wicked men, look at what they're doing, look at all these evil things that they're doing, etc. And they will go ahead and they will literally take thrusts at their own brethren. Many a times not doing the previous work that we're going to study of what needs to be done before the public rebuke should be given. These ministries today have become very popular because something about Seventh-day Adventist present truth people is we love to fight.
There are certain people who hold to the lines of the teachings and principles of present truth that we like a good fight. We like a good battle. So when we see so-called warriors of God that come up and say, I ain't afraid of nothing. I'm not holding my peace to obtain the favor of any. And they quote inspiration and they will begin to strive and attack and thrust their own brethren. They will begin to do what the prophet of God says, take the weapon of God's words and even turn it against the church. There's a lot of ministries like that. And what God wants us to understand is that neither one of these camps he's leading. We can't be in the spirit of cowardice, but we can't become so careless with our mouth that we think that it is virtuous to just say any and everything that comes up in our mind and comes up in our heart against those people that we sometimes even call brother and sister. And so we see fanaticism taking residence in the hearts of many of ministers and ministries on both sides of the spectrum. And just as much as God gives counsel of not to be a coward is the same way God gives counsel. Be careful of how you address and deal with your brethren. We have counsels on both sides. And so I believe and listen, this has been a burden on my heart for a long time, because what I said to you yesterday, I really meant it. Too many of God's people listen more than study and commune with God. We listen more than we study and commune with God. So what does that mean? That means that some of us go to YouTube and audio verse and three angels tube and every other tube. We go to these places to hear truth more than shutting off everything, opening our Bibles, getting on our knees and saying, Lord, teach me. There's not enough seven day Adventists that do that to date. But everybody knows how to repeat what their favorite evangelist, minister, or whatever else says. So right now, there are certain ministers and ministries on both sides of the spectrum. The cowards, as well as the brute and the rash. That many of God's people are downloading and listening to regularly. And what we don't understand is there is an eternal principle that comes from scripture. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at, look at what the Bible says. There's an eternal principle that we have to consider. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And I want you to see what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians, we're looking at chapter 3. And I want you to see what the Bible says as we consider verse 18. This is an eternal principle. And this principle is for good or for evil. Notice what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18. And if you're there, please say amen. amen. The Bible says, but we all... With open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord are what? Changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. This is where we get the term by beholding, we become changed. You understand that? So what happens is by beholding, if we behold the Lord, the spirit of the Lord helps bring change within us that we become more like the Lord. But if we behold the things of the devil, then the spirit of Satan is going to help assist us in reflecting more the image of Satan. And this is why I can look at especially young missionaries. I like to always pay attention to young missionaries. When I talk with young missionaries, you can learn a lot by them. I've, I've met so many young missionaries and I'll just watch how they preach. I'll listen to how they preach. I'll listen to how they teach. And literally, I can, I can almost say I know who their mentor is. In other words, there's a lot of us that are more followers than leaders. And we don't really know how to walk with Jesus one on one. And as a result of that, we're beholding others and we're being molded and fashioned into the image of those others. God needs to change that. 
if we're really going to be part of his team that's going to finish the work, God needs to change that. you got to be an individual. you got to know how to walk with Christ based on the blessings and the gifts and the talent that he has given to you. And not become a reflector of other men's thoughts. So now, rebukes. Go to the book of Mark 16 with me. We're going to the book of Mark, the 16th chapter. And I want you to see some principles from the Bible. Because there does come a time and place for rebukes. But we're going to learn some things. Mark 16. In Mark, the 16th chapter, when you get there, please say amen. I want you to see something the Bible says here. I thought it was beautiful how it comes out. The Bible says in Mark 16 and verse 15, a very simple commission that Christ has given to the disciples. Here's what it says. Mark 16, if we're there, please say amen. Amen. All right, we're in Mark, the 16th chapter, verse 15. And he said unto them, go ye into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel gospel to every creature. So we're called to preach what? The gospel. Now go to 2 Timothy 4. Go to 2 Timothy 4. We're called to preach what? The gospel. Now let's go to 2 Timothy 4. When you go to 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter, notice what the Bible says here. 2 Timothy chapter 4, I thought this was very interesting. It says in 2 Timothy 4, starting at verse 1, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach what? Now notice the Bible earlier said in Mark 16, 15, preach what? The gospel. But to truly preach the gospel really means to preach what? Preach the word. Now notice what is included in the preaching of the word. In preaching the word or the gospel carefully, notice what the Bible says as we continue in the verse. It says, preach the word, be instant how? In season and? out of season. Then it says, reprove, do what else? Rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. We are called to preach the gospel, which is to preach the word and rebuking is part of the gospel. Is that right? Because in preaching the word, God gave us instruction on how to do it. And he said, one of the things you got to do is when you preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, and reprove and rebuke with all long suffering. That's the part sometimes we miss. But notice that rebuking is actually a gospel work when it's done right. So when Jesus was preaching, even when he got to Matthew 23, was he still giving the gospel? Yes, he was. He was giving an aspect of the gospel that is not normally heard and not normally demonstrated, but yet is very much inclusive. Did you know, brothers and sisters, that one day is going to come where we're going to say Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, come out of her, my people, because she's become a partaker of all these sins and plagues and et cetera, and she's become a hold of every foul spirit in the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. That sounds like a rebuke. But that's the second angel's message which is part of the everlasting gospel. So rebuking is part of or connected to the gospel work. Do we understand that? So whenever we give a rebuke, let us not think that we've stepped out of the gospel. It's part of the gospel when it is appropriate that there may be a need to rebuke. We're talking about the ministry of rebukes. Now, the Bible gives a powerful principle here in Proverbs 27. Go to Proverbs, the 27th chapter, and let's notice what the Bible says here. In Proverbs, the 27th chapter, the Bible says something about rebukes. 
And I appreciate this because sometimes we don't like rebukes. Sometimes we don't like it. We say, oh, no, I don't want to do that. And it's certainly how much the more if the rebuke has to be given even to a leader. People don't want to do that. People are afraid. Some of us are still, uh, you know, affected by that Roman-like thinking where sometimes we think, oh, to rebuke a leader, we touch God's anointed, etc., and we don't pay attention to the Bible. The Bible would not have the stories it has in it if rebuking meant you're touching the Lord's anointed, as many people use or coin the term. But when you look at Proverbs 27, what does the Bible say in verse 5? And this is for some of us here. It says in Proverbs 27, right there in verse 5, it says, open rebuke is better than secret love. Do you see that? Open rebuke is better than secret love. Some people say this person is worthy of rebuke, but I'm just going to keep it a secret in my heart in the name of love. I love them. So I'm not going to give them an open rebuke, even though they are absolutely worthy of it. And they call it love. Solomon says open rebuke is better than secret love. And so it is that we have to understand that the ministry of rebukes, though it's not something we look forward to. I think something's wrong with any man when they look forward to rebuking people. But open rebuke are at times necessary. And we have to understand that open rebuke is actually a demonstration of love. How do we know that? Through the master. You remember Revelation 3 and verse 19, don't you? As many as I hate. Is that what the verse says? As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Love is the foundation of most rebukes. Why did I say most? Because watch, watch this. Love is the foundation of most rebukes. Now, why did I say most rebukes? Because watch this. Go to 1 John 4. If you look at 1 John 4, let's learn something. Love is the foundation of most rebukes. Let me show you this. Love is the foundation of most rebukes. Let's understand that a little bit better when I say that, because there's a context of how I'm saying this. Love is the foundation of most rebukes. Well, what do I mean? Well, let's look at 1 John 4. When you look at 1 John 4, notice what the Bible says as we look at 1 John 4, and we're considering verse 8. 1 John 4, and we're looking at verse 8. If you're there, say amen. amen. The Bible says, he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is what? Love. All right, so God is love. Do you believe that? Yes. Amen. So then when I look at Luke 19, notice what the Bible says there. Luke 19, because when Jesus came on this earth, Matthew 1, tells me his name was Emmanuel, which means God with us. So when we look at Jesus, we know that Jesus is the walking embodiment of love. Amen. Amen. Well, let's notice something about the ministry of Christ. What does love always do? What does Jesus do? What did Jesus do? What does he do even today? In Luke 19, notice what the Bible says in verse 10. In Luke 19 and verse 10, it says, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was what? Lost. Lost. So the grand purpose of most rebukes is the purpose of demonstrating God's love that the person being rebuked may be saved. Are you following? Now, why did I say most? Did not Jesus rebuke Satan in Zechariah 3? Did Jesus rebuke Satan because he wanted to save Satan? No. Get it? That's why I said most. The only rebuke 
that we see that is not for the purpose of salvation in scripture is when Jesus rebukes Satan and his demons. When he rebukes Satan and his demons, he did not do it for the purpose of redeeming them. You understand that? But when it comes to humanity, every time Christ would give his rebukes, it was always for the same purpose and built on the same motive. His motive was, I am rebuking you because I love you. And that love is always manifested in seeking to save that which was lost. You get it? So when I think about the ministry of rebukes, I am understanding that it has a purpose. The purpose of a rebuke is not just to let you know how evil you are. Are you following? The purpose of the rebuke is not just to warn people of how evil you are. The purpose of rebukes is so that the one being rebuked will receive the love of God through the rebuke that that individual will be called to be saved from their lost condition. You following that? All right, because we're studying. So now we're looking at this thing, and the question is, how is that love? I've heard so many people say this, and I've said it myself, and I know that I was lying, and I believe most are too. I remember I used to say the things to people like this, because I was one of the guys that was on that left side. Remember I told you there was a cowards over here on the right? I was the left side guy. I was the guy that wasn't afraid of nobody. That's how my father raised me. My father raised me up as a man not to be afraid of any man. No man. I watched my father live a very fearless life. I mean, guys bigger than him, didn't matter. If somebody crossed my father, my father would let them know, you crossed me and I don't appreciate it. And if you don't fix it, we're going to need to handle this. And my father was that kind of guy. So watching that, by beholding, I became changed. So I grew up. Fearless as well. So, you know, if a brother starts acting funny, it was kind of like, listen, do, do we have a problem? You know, do we have a problem? And I brought that spirit into Christianity. So when elders and pastors and people who hold position of leadership, when I would start seeing them behave like Jeremiah 23 describes, when I see them behave like that, it was not a problem to walk in their face and be like, you a whitewashed sepulcher. You need to fix that. That was error what you taught. I would literally look at, I remember standing in a room with, surrounded by elders, and I literally told them, I said, all of you are cowards. Every single one of you. And you know what some people say? Man, Dwayne reminds me of Nehemiah. Dwayne, Dwayne ready to pull a brother's beard off. You know, and all that stuff. That's what Nehemiah did. But what I'm saying is, is that while people thought, oh, Dwayne is such a tough guy, God was showing me, you know nothing about my love. God was helping me say, you know nothing about my love, son. Because God knew that in my rebuking them, if they disappeared, I'd never even ask where they were. In other words, I gave rebukes under the context of go away. Go away. And I hope you never, ever come back and stay away from these wonderful little sheep that you are poisoning. You understand that? That was the spirit that had absolute control of my heart. So I'm a man speaking from experience, and a man with experience will dominate 99 men with theory. I know what I'm talking about. I'm telling you, there's a spirit that can control us, that we think we do at God's service when God has to wake us up and realize, no, you're actually fighting against me, not for me. Just like Saul. Saul thought he was doing God's service, but God had to tell him, no, you're kicking against the pricks. 
So there's some stuff going on in our hearts that at the end of the day, only you and the Holy Spirit can square it away. You understand that? So this becomes a very, very serious issue. Now, looking at that, God wants us to understand all rebuke should be based on true love. And the ultimate goal of that love is that you are seeking to save that which is lost. Now, how does that work? First Corinthians 13. So go there with me. In 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, the text of scripture that very few people read. We think somehow we can read it once, twice, and then just kind of keep it moving and go to some deeper truths, as we say. But we're going to 1 Corinthians 13. And when you go to 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to show you how important this quotation is. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 8, if you're there, please say amen. Amen. The Bible says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, and I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be what? Burned and have not charity, it profiteth me how much? Nothing. Now, next to verse three, if you're the kind of person that writes notes or anything, put Acts of the Apostles, page 318. And if you put Acts of the Apostles, page 318, Ellen White comments on verse three of First Corinthians 13. And she says there are some that will even suffer a martyr's death. And she says, but if it was not because of heaven born love. That individual will be regarded by God as a deluded enthusiast or an ambitious hypocrite. We, if we saw somebody say, stand for the present truth, no Sunday law, stand for the crisis, and so on, and if they got killed or gunned down as a result of sounding the alarm, many of us would probably be fooled and say, there goes one of God's martyrs. But I'm so thankful that God says, look not upon his countenance, for I have rejected him, because God says, I am not like man, because God says, I look at the heart. And if that individual even dies what appears to be that martyr's death, but if it is not because of heaven-born love, heaven-born love, meaning you and I can't manufacture this one, can't make it up and you could fake it but so long. But if it's not because of heaven-born love, God will regard that martyr. Oh, everybody else will go ahead and praise him, but God will regard that martyr as a deluded enthusiast or an ambitious hypocrite. And so it is that it continues in verse four now giving counsel. It says charity suffers long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things, charity never fails. This is so important to me because I just want you to see this. Look at what inspiration says right here. It says, the Lord desires me to call the attention of his people to the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. It says, read this chapter how often? Isn't it amazing how we don't do what counsel says? Read this chapter how often? Every 
every day and from it obtain comfort and strength. Learn from it the value that God places on sanctified, what kind of love? Heaven-born love. And let the lesson that it teaches come home to your hearts. Learn that Christ-like love is of heavenly birth and that without it, all other qualifications are worthless. Review and Herald, July 21st, 1904. So God wants us to understand that we need to meditate because when you pay attention to how a lot of rebukes are being made in the church towards others in the church, you can see massive pockets opened from 1 Corinthians 13. You can see a lot of points are missed. Yet we say those are God's soldiers. I will lie to myself and tell people, you know, I'm telling you this because I love you. You ever heard somebody say that before? Brothers and sisters, listen to what I'm saying to you. I, I mean, I'm sure I am teaching. There are a lot of times that we will give some of the most straight, stern rebukes to people. And we think I'm doing this because I love you. God says, really? God says, well, why don't we study love? And then we start going to 1 Corinthians 13. And then we go to 1 Corinthians 13. And when we patiently go through the verses, pick every description. And then you start asking yourself, have I manifested that? Have I manifested that? Have I manifested? Do you know how many people call themselves brothers and sisters in the Seventh-day Adventist church? Yet, if some of us do wrong to each other, sometimes we don't even go to each other. We will go to others and tell others what you have done to us. And I'm thinking, is that how you treat family? I mean, what's the whole purpose of calling me Brother Lemon? The purpose of calling me Brother Lemon is because you are lying or acknowledging that I'm your brother. We have relationship. Is this how you treat your family? This is how you talk about your brothers and your sisters? Is this how you talk about your mother and your father? We would be so much slower in doing a lot of some of the demonic devilish work that some of us have done if we really understood that we family. You don't do that with your family. You don't do that with your family, brothers and sisters. Because I know a lot of men right now that are married and I'm like, what if your wife was acting like a demon? Would you go ahead and post that on YouTube? <laughs> and the problem is, is that many of them would not do that. If their own children were acting like a bunch of little demons, would you make that your new program? So why is it that your children and your wife get a break? Because in your mind, you're saying, that's my family. But then if Ted Wilson does something, all of a sudden, Brother Wilson needs to be exposed. Brother Wilson. I have a problem with that. That's your family. Amen. I call him Brother Wilson because he's my brother. Amen. So even if he says something that's not biblically correct, you do what you're supposed to do with family. You reach out and you talk to them. Amen. But it seems so easy to hide behind cyberspace. It seems so hard to pick up a phone and say, can we talk? So God wants us to understand that there's something he's trying to teach us through these lessons that we need to get very, very clear in our minds. Now, love must be the foundation of all rebuke. So every rebuke that Christ gave to human beings was based on what? Love. love. And love always seeks to save that which was? 
lost, and we see love especially demonstrated through what book and chapter? 1 Corinthians 13. So before I rebuke, I'm going to assess myself. Now it's time to check your heart. Now it's time for you to really check your heart. And guess what? You don't love me when you see me going wrong, and you see me going down the road of perdition, and you don't say nothing because you're harboring secret love. Solomon has already addressed that. Is that right? You understand? So I'm talking to both camps, the coward camp and the brute rash camp. Both of these camps need to understand a little bit more about love. Because love will make you stand for things that in any other case you wouldn't have stood for it. Love will make you strive for things that in any other case you wouldn't have strove for it. So God wants us to understand these incredible principles. Now, did you know that in order to demonstrate love, you always had to come close to the people? Did you know that? Love is not something that was reserved for distance. You know, you got a lot of young people having long distance love relationships. You know, y'all need to come counsel with me on that one. I got a word for you. I always meet these young people talking about, oh, I got my potential wife or husband lives over in ABC place. I said, all right, let's go to inspiration on that. Let's talk about it. We've had to give that counsel to several of our missionaries because young missionaries always looking to get married. Love draws close. How do we know that? Well, there's a few examples. Let's go to the book of Luke 15. If you go to Luke 15, you see an example constantly of love drawing close. Love drawing close to seek and save that which was lost. So another principle we learn about love is that it draws close to seek and save that which was lost. Love does not just simply seek to save that which was lost. Love draws close to seek and save that which was lost. Don't lose that point. Because all rebukes are based on what? Love. love. So love always seeks to save that which is lost. And in order to seek and save that which is lost, you got to come close. So how do we know that? Luke 15. If you look in Luke 15, look at what the Bible says in verses 4 to 7. Luke 15 and verses 4 to 7. Let's notice what the text says. Luke 15, 4 to 7. The Bible says, Luke 15... It says, what man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not what? Leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and do what? Go after that which is lost until he find it. And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over how many sinners? One sinner that repenteth more than over 99 just persons which need no repentance. When the sheep was lost, what did they do? Left the 99 and did what? They went after. They had to come close to the sheep in order to save that sheep. You understand that? Let's continue. Luke 15, 8 through 10. It says, either what woman having 10 pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek how? diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together saying, rejoice with me for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Notice lighting the candle, sweeping the house, doing everything possible to find the sheep. There was a lot of effort put. There's a lot of effort put in coming close to finding that coin. Continuing, Luke 15, 11 through 32. Now, for that one, because it's a lot of verses, that's the story of the prodigal son. Okay, story of the prodigal son. 
And again, we see the same principle coming out over and over and over again. So notice that according to the Bible, love always draws close to the object that you're trying to seek and save. So if all rebukes are based on love, then that means that that love is to seek and save that which is lost. And to do that, you got to draw close. So if I can easily hide behind cyberspace and call everybody sinners but me and my crew, if I can hide behind cyberspace and blast everybody instead of sending them a text and saying, listen, can I call you? We need to talk. It requires effort, but isn't that what we just read? That's what it requires when it comes to soul winning. You got to put forth effort. You can't be lazy in trying to win your brothers and sisters. And brother, listen, if you know you got brothers and sisters that's about to be lost, I think it merits some effort. We can't be like, look, I'm busy. I got time to rebuke you, but I don't have no time to be trying to save you. Got plenty of time to rebuke you. Edit put in the right quotes and everything. I want to I want to prove that you are an apostate. I got to take time to put those presentations together, bro. But I don't have no time to call you. I just don't have time for that. I don't have time to, you know, send an email, at least a text. I don't have time for that. There's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that. That's not God's spirit leading. And so when we see that, we need to understand that all rebukes, yes, they must be based on love, no doubt. And love always seeks to save that which is lost. And to seek and save that which is lost, you've got to come close. Yeah. Got to come close. You've got to put forth some effort to make sure that person receives the rebuke. and They can come home. Now, I learned these lessons, believe it or not, in family worship. Getting together every morning with my wife and my children. This is how this thing just started, coming together piece by piece. And it's here it is. I remember they'll, they'll tell you. I remember one morning when, when I got to this point here, I said, I never knew this. I said, this is incredible. And we just started going in on it and talking about it. And it was just such a blessing. The next point we need to understand is that not all rebukes are the same. Not all rebukes are to be distributed the same way. Well, how do we know that? You remember Joshua. He put forth an effort to go fight a nation. But God was not the one leading. And there were some people who lost their lives and there's some casualties. This is what inspiration says about it. Signs of the Times, April 21st, 1881. But our merciful God did not visit his servant with wrath because of this error. It says he graciously accepted the humiliation and prayers of Joshua and at the same time, what? Gently, Gently rebuked. Did you know there's a such thing as a gentle rebuke? Gently rebuked his unbelief and then revealed to him the cause of their defeat. Isn't that something? But the same way that there are gentle rebukes, we have to understand that sometimes there's something more than gentle rebukes. You see, there was a time David committed sin. And when God raised up Nathan to hold David accountable, notice what inspiration says here in Christ triumphant, page 149, paragraph four. David erred greatly. But he was just as greatly humbled and his contrition was as profound as his guilt. There was never a person more humble than David under a sense of his sin. He showed himself a strong man, not in always resisting temptation, but in the contrition of soul and sincere penitence manifested. He never lost his confidence in God who put the what? Stern, Stern rebuke 
in the mouth of his prophet. When Nathan came to David, Nathan came to David with a what? Stern rebuke. There's a time that rebukes are going to be stern. Sometimes rebukes can be gentle. Other times rebukes can be stern. It says stern rebuke in the mouth of his prophet. He had no hatred for the prophet of God. He was beloved also because he relied upon the mercy of a God whom he had loved and served and honored. Why is that important for us? The reason why that's important is because there are times when God will gently rebuke and there are times that he will sternly rebuke. If you and I are called to rebuke, we know that all rebukes are based on love. Love always seeks to save that which is lost. And to seek to save that which is lost, you've got to come close. But in doing this work, there are times that when we get to the place where we are about to give the rebuke, there are times that the rebuke may need to be gentle. And then there are other times when the rebuke needs to be stern. So what are some examples of this? So let's go to the book now of Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We're going to Luke, the 10th chapter. There was a rebuke that Jesus had to give. You're going to see why I've entitled this the ministry of rebukes. You'll see. There was a time that Jesus had to give a rebuke to someone that he loved. In Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Let's notice what the Bible says. Luke 10, 38 to 42. If you're there, please say amen. amen. All right. In Luke 10, verse 38, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus's feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she help me. So notice, Martha, if you really look at it, she was kind of rebuking Jesus. You don't care? Don't you care? Tell her to help me. So how did Jesus respond? It says, and Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Do you know that when you read Our High Calling, page 281, paragraph 2 to paragraph 6, do you know that Jesus rebuked her? He rebuked her. He gave her a rebuke. But how did he do it? I want you to notice this. Martha's gentle rebuke was by acknowledging her good works. In other words, Jesus, when he rebuked her, he acknowledged her good works, yet he showed her the neglect of her greater work. That was a rebuke. In other words, he said, Martha, Martha, listen, you cumber yourself and you do a lot. I, I do understand. He commended, yes, you do work very hard, but he says, but your sister did a greater work that you should have done. She got the gems that you missed. And this is why we have a lot of counsel on women who spend so much time keeping their houses clean that they start to lose their time for devotion and communion with God. Jesus says, that's good that you keep your house clean because God likes cleanliness. But God says, but don't get so caught up cleaning your house that you don't have time for worship. Martha, you're doing a good work, but Mary chose the greater thing and you didn't. That's what you call a gentle rebuke. He didn't say, Martha, look at you. Look at you, sis. What's wrong with you? He didn't come anything like that to Martha, did he? He didn't open up a script and say, the Bible says there's some who will be functioning by the devil and giving things to more temporal time. Martha, it is you. (laughs) 
Jesus knew Martha, I know you love me. He knew, he said, I know you love me. He says, but you gotta understand, Martha, that there are greater and more important things than just doing the acts of servitude. Sometimes you need to come and sit at my feet. You understand that? Luke chapter seven. Luke chapter 7. I know the time is going. I'm going to ask you to bear with me. I mean, I really believe the Spirit of God wants this message to go forward, please. So just, you know, let the brethren know I'm going to do it as fast as I can. But I, I really believe God is doing something. I literally sense his presence in this room. In Luke 7, 39. Notice what the Bible says in Luke 7, 39. I like this. Luke 7 and verse 39. The Bible says in Luke 7, in verse 39, if you're there, please say Amen. All right, in Luke 7, 39, here's what the Bible says. We're going to do 39 to 47. It says, now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it. Let me give you a backdrop. This is Simon. This is Simon's house, and, uh, you know, he's having a feast. He invites Jesus to come amongst others. And there was uh, Mary who came. And, of course, Mary opened the alabaster box and put the oil on his feet, etc. So this is what's happening, okay? That's the backdrop. So now we're at verse 39 in the midst of the story. And it says, now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, this man... If he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he said, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, the one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, But this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. This was a rebuke. This was a rebuke to Simon. It was a direct rebuke to him. But when you read Desire of Ages, page 567, and 568, and the prophet of God begins to magnify this story. It literally says that Simon appreciated how Jesus quietly rebuked him. Quietly rebuked him. You see, we're actually watching examples where Jesus literally was rebuking in such a manner that it was to seek and save that which was lost, and therefore he had to come close. He was at Simon's house. You understand that? Constantly, Jesus pressing and seeking to save. And so it is that when we look at this example, again, we see an example of a quiet rebuke. You see, not all rebukes are to be distributed the same. There's some people that think when it's time to rebuke, it's time to rebuke. That means eyebrows always bent. That means tone always high. That means bodily position always in an active ready position for combat. We have to understand more about Jesus. Jesus did not rebuke everybody the same way. Sometimes he was educational. Sometimes he would say, well, let's consider this. And then he would go ahead and throw out a parable. Through the parable, the people people would say, I got it. 
And then Jesus would say, mission accomplished. And he would keep it moving. Literally, he would rebuke, but it was done in ways where it would draw people's hearts. Draw people's hearts to them. So there are times for quiet rebukes. There are times for gentle rebukes, but there are times for stern rebukes. In Matthew 23, we saw an example of stern rebuke. Jesus got to a place that he saw the need to sternly rebuke his brothers. I often wondered why. Why does Matthew 23 exist? I would like to encourage you to study very carefully, not simply Matthew 23. I want you to go back chapters. Go back to Matthew 20. Go back to Matthew 19, etc. What you will find very consistent about the ministry of Christ, and boy, is this a powerful point here. What you will find very consistent about the, the rebukes of Christ in his ministry was that when Jesus would rebuke, it was often that he had to rebuke the leaders because they were blocking him from doing his mission. In other words, Jesus was not waking up in the morning and thinking, what message can I put together to show the people how hypocritical the Pharisees are today? What Jesus did is simply said, souls are perishing and in need. I'm going to avail myself to minister to the needs of these people. And then what would happen is Jesus would minister to the needs of the people. And then one day Pharisees would just show up and they'll just say, this is interesting. So what authority do you have for doing the work that you do? They were interfering with Christ's ministry. And when Christ saw, I can't get my work finished until I address you. So therefore, Jesus says, all right, I'm going to address you. So then since you're blocking me, I have to remove the obstacle. And the only way I can do that is by addressing you. So therefore, he addressed them. And he would say, well, you tell me, John the Baptist, was he sent of God? Yes or no? They started thinking, well, if we say he was sent, he's going to say, why didn't we listen to him? If we say he wasn't sent, the people will stone us because they know they respected John as a prophet. You know what? Let's just say we can't answer him. So they came back together and said, we can't answer you. Jesus said, well, then I'm not going to answer you either. And then he just keeps it moving. He keeps it going and he goes forward in his work. But there came a point in time that when you study Matthew 18, Matthew 19, 20, 21, 22, you constantly see them blocking Christ, blocking Christ, blocking Christ. So by the time you get to Matthew 23, something happened where Christ says, this is it. It's time. I want to show you what was going on in the mind of Jesus that caused him to say, the scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. And he started to go down his route. I'm going to show you. It says the interest of the people in Christ and his work had steadily increased. They were charmed with his teaching, but they were also greatly perplexed. They had respected the priests and rabbis for their intelligence and apparent piety. They said, they've gone to the schools. They have an MDiv. They have the doctorate. They have the PhD. Certainly, these men must know something. So what happened was, in all religious matters, look at what was going on in the mind of the people. In all religious matters, they had ever yielded what? Implicit. Implicit obedience to their authority. Priests and rabbis. 
Yet they now saw these men trying to cast discredit upon Jesus, a teacher whose virtue and knowledge shone forth the brighter from every assault. So the people were literally perplexed. They were saying to themselves, why do you have a problem with Jesus? They're talking to men that they have given implicit trust to and say, we know you're sent of God, but we can clearly see Jesus is sent of God. But yet you have a problem with Jesus and it caused perplexity for them. Why? And Christ was observing all of it. What did Jesus do? Notice. He had set before these leaders their real condition and the retribution sure to follow persistence in their evil deeds. The warning had been faithfully given, yet another what? Work remained for Christ to do. Can you imagine that? There was another work. You know, we always say finish the And it's interesting, Christ knew before the work could be finished, there was another work he had to do. I wonder if there's another work that there are going to be times we're going to have to do it. Notice, it says another purpose was still to be accomplished. What was this purpose? Notice. It says, in the parables which Christ had spoken, it was his purpose both to... Now, look at this. This is very interesting. When Jesus would give a parable, look at what the purpose was in his mind when he gave parables. It says, it was his purpose both to warn the rulers and to instruct the people who were willing to be taught. So whenever Jesus would give those parables, he was trying to accomplish two things. Rulers, I'm warning you. People, learn the lesson. But watch. It says, but there was need to speak yet more how? Plainly. Through their reverence for tradition and their blind faith in a corrupt priesthood, the people were what? Enslaved. Now, when somebody is a slave, what do you want to do if you're working in the ministry of Christ? You want to set the captives? So notice, the people were enslaved. So these chains Christ must break. The character of the priests, rulers, and Pharisees must be more fully exposed. That's why Matthew 23 exists. Desire of Ages 6.10 and 6.11. Jesus saw the problem is these people are giving implicit trust to individuals that have corrupted the priesthood. And as a result of that, Jesus saw them as enslaved. So he said these chains have to be broken. And the only way he could do it was these men who constantly was blocking his work. He says it's time for them to be more fully exposed. And now stern rebukes come in. But I want you to capture carefully some of the things that made up this stern rebuke of Christ. And I want you to watch it very carefully as we begin to look at some very important points. When Jesus was about to give these stern rebukes to these Pharisees and scribes, let's look at some principles. Isaiah 5 and verse 4. These are governing principles in the rebuking work of Christ. Let's look at Isaiah 5 and verse 4. Governing principles in the rebuking work of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Isaiah 5 and verse 4. And when you get there... Just let me know by saying amen. Amen. All right. So in Isaiah 5 and verse 4, notice what the Bible says. The Bible says, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth what? 
wild grapes. Jesus put out a question through inspiration that has a powerful lesson for us. You know what Jesus said? I gave every evidence that I wanted you to be saved. He says, what more could I have done to my vineyard that I have not done? In other words, before the stern rebuke would be given, there was an evidence that he was trying to reach the same people he was about to sternly rebuke. What more could I have done that I have not done to my vineyard? What is God trying to say to us? God is trying to say before we give the stern rebukes that we should keep in mind that there should have been an evidence that the people that we're sternly rebuking in our church, in our, our brothers and our sisters, there should be an evidence that you were trying to reach them. You know, some ministers never even heard of us until the day we comes we rebuke them. Now, I'm not saying we can be friends with everybody, but what I am saying is that there should be a reaching out to a brother. I mean, listen, I have seen sermons. I have seen things. I, again, I could really roll out a laundry list. There's only one time that you probably have seen where I was being attacked or, or whatever it may be by a certain individual's leadership, and that was through that video that uh, was done at that church in Florida, Show Thyself a Man, when all those folks came up behind me and everything and tried to shut me down. And it's like, look, I mean, I didn't ask for that. I did not ask for that. So I had to, I had to address it because it was there. Again, Jesus was doing his work. People came up and tried to block it, so Christ had to address it. You understand that? But nevertheless, no. God says, listen, there should be an evidence. Even in John, when you look at John 5, 34, did you know John 5, when Jesus told the Pharisees, I know that the love of God is not in your heart. When Jesus told them that, did you know why he told them that? Go to John 5. Look at John 5. We're going to look at some final points here. John 5. When you look at John, the fifth chapter, notice what the Bible says. John 5. Jesus told them, he said, look, I know that the love of God is not in your heart. But why did he say these things? Look at what it says in John 5 and verse 34. Because John 5, this is where Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees. You understand that? So look at what it says, John 5, 34. He says, but I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that what? So did Jesus want to save the Pharisees? You understand that? Even when he was rebuking them sternly, he wanted to save them. He wanted to save them. These things I'm saying to you because I want to save you. I want you to be saved. You understand that? That theme just keeps coming out. Now, so point number one is that when we look at the lessons of Jesus in his rebukes, we see that Christ gave his rebukes, yes, but Jesus made sure that there was first an evidence of his love towards these people that he was trying to rebuke. He was qualified because there was an evidence. You know, often Ellen White had to rebuke a lot of people, a lot. But there was a reason why she could call Jones, my son. There was a reason she can call Wagner, dear son. The reason Ellen White could call these people that is because Sister White knew. She says, I have relationship with you. You know my love for you. You know my care for you. He left an evidence of his love. And it was after the evidence of his love that there were times where he had to launch it in and go into his stern rebukes. But what's another? You're still in John 5. In John 5, notice this one. In John 5 and verse 42, what does the Bible say next? John 5, 42. Oh, I like this one, brothers and sisters. This is a good one. John 5 and verse 42, notice what the Bible says. In John 5 and verse 42, the Bible says, But I know you that ye what? Have not the love of God in you. John 11 and verse 5. Go there with me. In John 11, notice what the Bible says in verse 5. 
These are some powerful points, brothers and sisters. John 11 and verse 5. In John 11 and verse 5, it says, Now Jesus loved who? Martha and her sister and Lazarus. But watch this. Did Jesus love Martha, who, she, who he had to rebuke? Yes. yes, but if you read Desire of Ages, page 326, paragraph 4. Again, Desire of Ages, page 326, paragraph 4. If you read that, you will see that Jesus did not simply love Martha. Jesus also knew that Martha loved him. Okay? John 16. Go to John 16 with me. When you look at John, the 16th chapter, notice what the Bible says as we look in verse 27. John 16 and verse 27. Even when Jesus had to rebuke his disciples, notice what the Bible says. John 16, 27. For the father himself loveth you because what? You have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. So Jesus knew that the disciples loved him. What's the lesson we're learning? The lesson is, in all these cases, Jesus knew the condition of the people towards him. And this knowledge governed the manner of his rebukes. Jesus knew stern rebuke. Jesus knew gentle rebuke. Jesus knew quiet rebuke. He based his rebukes off of his knowledge of how the people were responding to the gospel. There are some men who have taught many things right. This is my message to the 2520 group. If ever there was a time that I saw my brothers and sisters, I said, man, you, you, it's not even right. Because I had people come to me when I did my first message, Brother Ernest, when we did the Santa Barbara meetings and we did persecution without and within and deep within. And we did those messages. That, that was when I earned the hatred of the 2520 organization. But what was interesting is that after I talked about the falsehood of this so-called 25, 20-year prophecy, it was amazing that people would say, we've listened to you all the time. We loved every sermon. We sensed the love of Jesus. We sensed this. We sensed that. We sensed everything. It was all good. But when you refuted the 25-20, you are going to hell. What? You are a son of Satan. And they began to like really late. They call me everything but a child of God. Now, my point was this. I was like, you know, that's kind of silly that even if they felt I was wrong, what they did was they negated every work. You understand that? They negated every work. And purely because of a doctrine that they hold dear, that's not even substantiated truly biblically, it all of a sudden merited the very hatred of God. This was something, brothers and sisters, that was problematic. What is the point? The point is, is you got to look at the whole of the package with an individual. Look at the demonstration. Don't just go by a sermon. Do what you can. And again, it may require that you have to send a message and respond to the individual. That's not the issue. But the issue is, is that there are some who are very harsh in the context of rebukes. And when I look at the example of Jesus in his rebukes, he had an evidence of where the people were with God. And it was deeper than just merely a sermon that was preached here or there. I think this one is extremely powerful. Matthew 23. We're winding down. Matthew 23. Matthew 23, notice what the Bible says in verse 1. It says, Then spake Jesus to the who? 
to the multitudes and to who else? So notice this. He spoke to the multitude and to the disciples. Now, this is a very important lesson here, brothers and sisters. Watch this one. When Jesus spoke to the multitude and to the disciples, I looked up the word multitude. Did you know that the multitude were those of the same faith and already believed on Jesus? Listen to what I'm saying to you. When Jesus rebuked the Pharisees before the multitude, the multitude, according to Matthew 21 and verse 46, were people who already believed on Christ and was part of the family of God. So Jesus, when he rebuked them, he did it to the multitude and to his disciples. He did it before them. Now, why am I making that point? You know why I'm making that point? When Jesus gave his open rebukes, he only did it amongst his family. He did not spread it out to non-believers. Are you following? Christ did not give his rebukes where non-believers could say, look at these silly Seventh-day Adventists. They want us to join their church, but look at all this drama they got going on. There are some Seventh-day Adventists that address all the issues in their family before a whole bunch of people that's not their family. We are supposed to keep our issues in-house. It's not for the world to know, and this is why I disagree with every one of these ministries. I don't care if they're in the conference or out of the conference. Anytime we begin to take our stuff and just put it on the net where anybody could watch it, it's no wonder that the Washington Post was saying in July, seven-day Adventists are getting ready to vote on a major agitation in their church on women's ordination. Let's watch and see what happens. Put your family's business out there. And now the world is watching us saying, look at these idiots. Look at these fools having all these arguments amongst one another. And then they're going to hold an evangelism series in my neighborhood and tell me, join the remnant. I think not. I think not. Get your own house in order. And then I'll even think about joining your church. You understand that? Brothers and sisters, we have to understand. We have to understand that there are times where rebukes must be given. Yes, no question about it. But at the same time, while those rebukes must be given, we got to pay attention to the pattern man and how he went about his rebukes because the rebuke outside of the spirit of Christ is ultimately to rebuke under the another spirit. When Jesus rebuked, number one, he made sure that there was an evidence of his love. That was given to those he was going to rebuke. These people didn't just say, I don't even know you. Where are you coming from just telling me that I'm a demon? There was some kind of evidence before the stern rebuke hit. Number two, Christ understood people's situations and circumstances. God allowed him to understand and discern and see some things. So that way it enabled him to know which rebuke. You know, I've listened to some of the most apostate sermons. But do you know sometimes when I listen to it, I can say, I know why he's saying that. I can see. Let me tell you, we keep thinking that all present truth speakers do right. And that's a massive deception. There are some present truth speakers that have absolutely shot themselves in the foot. They say things that are unnecessary. They demonstrate a spirit that is ungodly. And yet they think they do in God's service. So when the minister says, if this is what present truth is, I don't want nothing with it. So then the minister begins to fight against present truth because that's the picture of present truth that he got. So I'm compassionate to ministers like that. Listen, brothers and sisters, if we understood new theology, 
Do you understand a man can get excited about learning the word? Get excited and say, you know, I want to go to the college. He goes to the college because he wants to learn how to become a minister in the church. What he doesn't know is that there was something that started way back, well before any of us was born, called the alpha of apostasy that did affect our school systems, that ultimately, through the omega, we're going to see the same thing. So that innocent, listen to my words, the innocent soul goes into the school thinking everything's legit because it's our school. They sit down and they listen to sometimes professors that teach deadly heresy. And they listen to that thing and they say, hmm, hmm, all right, this is truth. They graduate, get their certificates, and get assigned. And they get assigned, and they come to a church, and they say, all right, this is how we're going to do things in the church. Let's get some drums out. Let's have some celebration worship. Hey, ladies, keep them skirts nice and high. Look modern. Brothers, let's go ahead and get those games going. Let's get all the competitive sports. And they let the church just become an absolutely worldly institute. Now, we look at that, and we say, this demon, look at that leader, look at what he did, da, da, da. and we don't understand, he is a victim of false education. So then what happens is, is he worthy to be corrected? Of course, that's why scripture's given. But we have to understand the circumstances and, you know, pray, Father, lead me, how do I address this individual? And we go to them, according to the leading of God's spirit, and we become instruments of education, not necessarily instruments of condemnation. And and why do I say this? I have seen so many ministers who were against God's present truth literally become teammates with God to finish his work. I've seen it with my own eyes. How did that happen? Because I didn't come in judging this brother saying, oh, you're a leader, apostate. I didn't do it that quick. What I said was, okay, let's find out what's going on. Then you see the actions. You say, okay, there's usually a cause to a disease. That's how medical missionaries think, right? So I, know, I want to ascertain the cause. And the cure, remember, hey, don't we know as medical missionaries, the cure is in the cause. Why are you like this? False education. So what does he need? True education. Not just simply whitewash sepulcher. Watch out for him. That minister, stay away from that church. It's not that simple. So Christ says there's a way that we go about doing this that we can ultimately reach. Now, there are some men who have chosen to stand under the banner of Satan. There are some that they have made it clear, look, brother, I am for the devil. And I am against anything y'all preach. I'm against anything in the context of present truth. I am against it. There are some people that's like that. And these are going to be the ones that when we understand a circumstance, we're going to say, all right, you don't need quiet and you don't need gentle. You need stern rebuke. It's not that stern rebukes aren't given, but we have to understand it. But when the rebukes are given, keep it amongst your family. YouTube is a place anybody can go. You don't bring your family. Again, I say to any minister, would you put your wife's business on your YouTube channels? Would you post your husband's business in your Facebook page? Would you put your family's business out there? You know your wife's not perfect. You know your husband's not perfect. You know your children are not perfect. And you know they have sins that sometimes you see. Is that an occasion now to put it on the front page of your post or your website? No, why? Because that's my family. Well, guess what? I'm your family too. That's why you call me Brother Lemon, right? That's why I call you sister so-and-so. We're family. You don't bring your family's dirt before the world. 
Jesus gave us that example. So when he rebuked, he did it amongst the multitudes. The multitudes was those who already believed in God. They were already part of the family. The disciples, they were already part of the family. Christ was not rebuking them in front of Gentiles. That's a lesson for us. Now, why? Because 1 Corinthians 6. Go to 1 Corinthians 6. Notice what the Bible says. In 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, notice what the Bible says. Watch this now. In 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, look what the text says. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 6. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 6, if you're there, please say amen. amen. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 6, it says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If ye then have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before who? Unbelievers. God says, don't do that. Don't bring your dirt before unbelievers. Now, why is that important? Listen, I want you to read this. Right, you want to make this your study. Get the book, Counsels to Writers and Editors. And I want you to read chapter 10, the whole chapter, chapter 10. And it's called On Publishing Conflicting Views. These are quotations that a lot of times offshoots don't quote. And I'm so sick. They will not quote this thing. And it's not all offshoots. We got a lot of people in the church body, in the church organization that also do a tremendous damaging work. And they are worthy of rebukes. But we understand the principles. So notice. I'm going to show you this little point right here. I'm going to go past that. Yeah, look at this. There was a letter. To A.T. Jones that was written. If any of you know anything about A.T. Jones, A.T. Jones was a warrior in the Seventh-day Adventist church. That brother loved to fight, even his own brethren. Seriously, he loved to fight. But you got to remember, it's interesting. He loved to fight, but he also had a military background. He came out of the military in 1874, and then obviously he started to, he joined the Advent band and, you know, grew in the movement. But watch this. A letter was written to him, and notice what the letter stated. Those who speak to the people through our periodicals should preserve unity among themselves. It says nothing that savors of what? Dissension should be found in our publications. Satan is always seeking to cause dissension for well he knows that by this means he can most effectually counteract the work of God. We should not give place to his devices. All right. Councils to Writers and Editors of 74. Now, notice this next one here. I have no hesitancy. This is Ellen White. She's talking to these brothers. I have no hesitancy in saying you have made a mistake here. What happened was when Jones would have a disagreement with his brethren on a viewpoint, he would literally, he would put that thing in the publications. And he would put it in the publication and put it out in the article. The problem was other people were getting their hands on the articles. And then what it would do is it would cause dissension amongst the brethren and it would cause confusion amongst those outside who would read it. So it says, I have no hesitancy in saying you have made a mistake here. You have departed from the positive directions God has given upon this matter. 
and only harm will be the result. This is not in God's order. What he was doing, placing his arguments in publications. This was not in God's order. You have now set the example for others. That's incredible, brothers and sisters. She said to him, what you just did, you just set an example for others to follow it. Now notice, she says, you have now set the example for others to do as you have done, to feel at liberty, to put in their various ideas and theories and bring them before the public because you have done this. This will bring in a state of things that you have not yet dreamed of. Counsels to writers and editors, 75, paragraph two. We must keep before the world a what? United front. Do you see that? Satan will triumph to see differences among Seventh-day Adventists. Councils to writers and editors, page 76. Brothers and sisters, don't bring your family's business before the world. Don't bring your family's business before the world. You want to know why, Brother Lemon? Why is it we don't hear you talk about? It's, you, think, you think I'm blind? No, brothers. I know exactly what's going on in our church. What I know is it's nobody's business but my family. When I was at Mentone Church, they know. For If any of you from Mentone, you remember when I came there. When I was at Mentone, they said, Brother Lemon, can you address the issues in the church? I said, I will if you cut the cameras off. They said, all right, we'll cut the cameras off. I said, cameras off? All right. I said, all right, family, let's talk. And we went in it. We went in, brothers and sisters, and we talked about the realities of what's going on. But that's not the world's business. We must present to the world a united front. The same way, I can guarantee you, y'all know I love my wife, brothers and sisters. I can't stop talking about her. She's a beautiful woman inside and out. All right? And I love my children. My children are gifts from God. You hear me? Imperfect, but gifts from God. But guess what? You don't hear me go around talking about, you know my wife? You know my, if you saw my son yesterday, I'm not going to bring my family's business out. That's none of your business. Amen. You understand that? That's my family. Amen. It's a sacred circle up in here. And that sacred circle is not to be violated. Amen. You understand that? Amen. So it is. We, we as seven-day Adventists, we have a sacred circle around us. We are family. And don't bring your family's dirt before other people. So there's a lot of stuff going on right now in the name of standing for present truth and being warriors for God and all of that. But at the end of the day, when it's carefully studied, like we've been doing, we can see, no, there's a lot being done that's wrong. There's a lot being done in the wrong spirit. And God wants to correct these things. Now, somebody says, oh, but Brother Lemon, well, since we're going through all this, the question is, someone may say, well, there's so much error out there. Don't we need to expose the people? Yes. The Bible says in Romans 16, mark those who cause discord. That's right. So there is a time where we have to mark people and say, do this, that, and the other. Yes, that's true. But we have to remember, keep it amongst the family. If you're going to go ahead and minister to your brethren, remember, just remember, if, you got, if you've done all the steps of Christ, you have earned every right to give as strong a rebuke as you can. You've earned every right. So it's not that we don't give rebukes. It's not that we don't call out even leaders when they're doing evil deeds. 
But we got to do everything in the spirit and manner of Jesus Christ. And if we do it in the spirit and manner of Christ, I believe God will bless and endorse our work. And the Lord will be glorified. So if you're going to give a rebuke, let's remember some closing points. Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, if I got to get to the place where I am going to give a stern rebuke, just remember. Ephesians 4 and verse 15. The Bible says in Ephesians 4 and verse 15, if you're there, please say amen. amen. The Bible says in Ephesians 4 and verse 15, it says, but speaking the truth, how? In love. Speak the truth, how? In love. Notice what inspiration says. It says, many are deceived. Speak the truth in tones and words of love. I like the fact that the prophet says tones. I'm telling you, man, God does not miss one stone because he knows the frailty of humanity. It says, speak the truth in tones and words of love. Let Christ be exalted. Keep to the what? Affirmative of truth. In other words, are there times that we're going to have to rebuke and call sin by its right name, even in the life and ministry of certain people? Yes, there is going to be times like that. It has to be governed by God's spirit. I can't tell you what words to say, but I'm glad God's spirit can. If we do everything based on the principles we've been studying, I believe God's spirit will guide us when it is time to give those straight, strong, stern rebukes. Now watch. It says, keep to the affirmative of truth. Never leave the straight path God has marked out for the purpose of giving someone a thrust. That thrust may do much harm and no good. Be careful when you talk about your brethren. You know, we have a tendency to say things like, you always do this. Every time. There's no present truth in our schools. Those are not even true statements. Damsky and Andrews is going to say, excuse me, that's incorrect. Isaac Olatunje over at Oakwood is going to say, excuse me, that's incorrect. But be careful of sweeping statements. Be careful of making thrusts. Be careful with that, brothers and sisters. It says it may quench. This is what will happen. When we give these thrusts to people, it may quench conviction in many minds. In other words, you could have saved that soul if our mission was more so to win them. You see, a lot of us treat a lot of leaders like their probation has already closed. And because their probation has already closed, they are purely dangerous people. So there's no message of redemption for them. It is purely a warning for the people. Now, can I show you something that is so deep? Did you know that right before the close of probation, God did something special? Go to the book of Acts 6. Right before, because, you know, we believe in the close of probation. Is that right? We believe that. Let me show you something in the type. Did you know right before the close of probation? Notice what the Bible says in Acts chapter 6. You know in Acts chapter 7 is the close of probation. Acts chapter 7 is the close of probation. Okay? Notice what happened right before the close of probation in Acts chapter 6. Notice. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says in Acts chapter 6, there were a whole bunch of deacons that were anointed with the Holy Spirit and called to their work. Notice what the Bible says here. It says, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of who? A great company of who? The priests were obedient to the faith. Did leaders join the side of Christ right before the close of probation? Yes. Would it not be so in the antitype? 
Yes. So don't treat leaders like their probation is already closed. There's some leaders today that are against God that if we rebuke rightly, they may very well come to God. And so we learn that when we speak the truth, we must speak the truth in love. Listen to this. Reflecting Christ, page 240, paragraph 5. People cannot be expected to see at once the advantage of truth over the error they have cherished. So what does it say? The what way? The best way. Notice this now. The best way to expose the fallacy of error is to present the evidence of what? So the best way to expose the fallacy of error is not simply to point out the people teaching error. The best way to expose the fallacy of error is to teach the truth. This is the greatest what? Isn't that something? I'm telling you, the Spirit of God led this study. This is the what rebuke? The greatest rebuke that can be given to error. Dispel the cloud of darkness resting on minds by reflecting the bright light of the sun of righteousness. My brothers and my sisters, God wants us to understand that there is something called the ministry of rebukes. But we have to understand to do it in the manner of Christ. And when I look at how Jesus rebuked, I leave you with Steps to Christ, page 12. It says Jesus did not suppress one word of truth, but he uttered it how often? Always in love. He exercised the greatest what? Tact and thoughtful, what else? Kind attention in his intercourse with the people. Do you notice that? When Jesus was rebuking, he demonstrated tact. He demonstrated thoughtful, kind attention. This is what he did. You understand that? Now look, it says he was what? Never rude. rude. Isn't that something? Even when he rebuked, he was never rude. It says he was never rude, never what? Needlessly spoke a severe word. Sometimes a word may be a little strong and severe. You are the man. You are the sinner. You have done it. Judgment is going to come upon you. There are times when that's going to hit. But he never needlessly said a severe word. He says he never gave needless pain to a sensitive soul. He did not censor human weakness. He spoke the truth, but always in love. He denounced hypocrisy, unbelief, and iniquity, but what? Tears were in his voice as he uttered his scathing rebukes. He wept over Jerusalem, the city he loved, which refused to receive him, the way, the truth, and the life. They had rejected him, the Savior, but he regarded them with pitying tenderness. Even when they rejected him, he still regarded them with pitying tenderness. It says his life was one of self-denial and thoughtful care for others. Every soul, that includes the Pharisees. Every soul was precious in his eyes. While he ever bore himself with divine dignity, he bowed with the tenderest regard to every member of the family of God. In all men, he saw fallen souls whom it was his mission to save. 
My hope and my prayer is that you understand the ministry of rebukes and that we may very well be called into finishing work. There are going to be times that we're going to have to rebuke. Sometimes it's going to be family members, like immediate. Sometimes it's going to be brethren in the church. And there are going to be times it's going to be leaders. And we can't be the coward, but we cannot be the brute and rash. We must rebuke as Jesus rebuked, because he is our pattern man. And when we do it the way he did it, we can claim every promise that God gives to those who faithfully give the everlasting gospel. If you know, I have been a coward. I've been afraid. I've heard this stuff so much, and I've seen both camps. That's the thing. I've been in both camps. I've been in the camp that keeps silent, and they just won't go past a certain level because they know if I go a certain level, it's going to destroy my ministry and my influence. So in the name of wisdom, I will stay quiet. There's too many ministries that exist like that, and they need to overcome that fear and that cowardice because we're at the closing scenes. Even Danny Shelton said the other night on 3ABN, he said, look, it's no longer business as usual. I mean, brethren are understanding, look, we can't operate like business as usual. If we see stuff going on, brothers and sisters, we got to address it. And there are some churches that have some leaders. There are some conferences that have some leaders that need to be addressed. But you got to do it in the right spirit. You got to do it the way Jesus did it. So there are some of us that we've been afraid. We have been possessed by that spirit of cowardice. There are some of us that we have been brutes. And we have acted like we're a bunch of spiritual tough guys and tough girls. And we've been going around trying to act like we're bigger and bolder and badder than others. And we are ready to tell everybody what it is to their face. And it is what it is, like it or love it. And some of us have had the wrong attitude. And in either case, if you fall into this camp, I'm telling you, God cannot use you. He can't use you to finish the work. We got to be willing to go all the way with Jesus in his example. And there will come a time, and it may be different for you than for me, but there's going to come a time where we've done all of our parabolic warnings and instructions. Did you pay attention to the quote? Jesus would warn leaders and instruct the people through parables, but there came a time where Jesus says, I must speak more plainly. I don't know when your time is going to come. I don't believe it's just one sweeping time, but a time is going to come in your ministries as pastors and elders and and leaders in the church and et cetera. There are going to come times where God is going to literally call you. and He's going to let you know there's a straight testimony that has to be stated on this. It might cost you. It might cost you. Your love for Christ must compel you. You can't have the spirit of coward. You can't have the spirit of the brute. We must understand the ministry of rebukes and do it like Jesus did it. So if you know, I've had the spirit of cowardice. You know, I've had the spirit of the brute. I had the spirit of the brute. I didn't have the coward. I had the brute. That was mine. God has taught me to be very tender with men. And I've seen a lot of people in leadership that have come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. I mean, it's just so beautiful to see it, brothers and sisters. I've seen that thing with my own eyes. I'm convinced 
there are still people in the church in leadership positions that even now are doing a devastating work that if the love of Christ can find their way to those souls and they are given rebuke in the manner of Christ based on the principles, I have seen these men turn from their wicked ways and follow God. So if you know you've been possessed by one of these spirits and you're saying, Lord, help me uproot out of me the spirit of cowardice, uproot out of me the spirit of the brute, and show me that when the time shall come for me to be called to rebuke, I will do it only as Jesus did it. And if that is you, please stand to your feet with me. And I believe that God is going to bless you beyond your expectations. We're living in the last moments, folks. Numbers are being made up. It's going to be hard to stand. You're going to need the strength of Jesus. And may God help us to walk in his strength. Let's pray. Our loving Father, Lord, we thank you for what we've studied today. We needed this, Father. You have placed this burden on my heart for years. And finally, it seemed that this was the time to give it. Lord, I pray, please let not your words fall on deaf ears. Lord, there's much more to study. I would imagine there's even those who may have some quote they can find to counter. I believe that truth was taught today. And Lord, all I can pray is for those of your sheep who have ears to hear, let them hear. And may they follow the shepherd wheresoever he may lead. Keep us faithful, we pray. And thank you so much for hearing our prayer. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.